Welcome to The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has over a million listeners around the world. The Common Bridge is available on Substack.com and draws guests and audiences across the political spectrum. We are again privileged to have with us Professor Anthony Colangelo from Southern Methodist University to talk about one of his areas of specialty, which is international law. We're recording this the day after the press conference from President Biden, where he talked extensively about the Ukraine. So let's get right into it. Professor Colangelo, thank you so much for coming to join us again on The Common Bridge. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great. Now, when we spoke on our earlier podcast, you talked about your experience at Northwestern, Columbia, and some of the specialties that you've developed. We, of course, will have your full bio at Substack and at richardhelpy.com. But do you mind just a quick thumbnail of your professional background and and what makes you qualified to have this conversation with us today? Sure. So, As I said in the prior podcast, I graduated at the top of my class from Northwestern, got a master's and PhD at Columbia, uh, clerked on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which uh, covers New York, Connecticut, and Vermont. And I taught at Columbia for two years, and now I'm down at SMU. My areas of expertise include international law and theory, foreign relations law, and uh, private and public international law. So including the law of war and the law of the use of nuclear weapons. Uh, I partner with a nuclear weapons NGO. So this is very much an area of expertise of mine, in particular, something that's fascinated me since I started, started working in this field is the law of military intervention. So what I thought I would do today would be a little bit more of an educational sort of presentation, then we can have a dialogue on that. And as we all know, So President Putin is sort of on the verge of invading the Ukraine. And just to give an example of how international law works, there are rules in place. And if you violate one of those rules, it authorizes a retaliation, more or less, from other countries to bring you back in line. Now, at this point, there is, I would say, two kind of avenues that the United States might follow, depending on the type or species of action Putin takes. If Putin comes in somewhere short of a military intervention, the U.S. may opt for a similar, what I would call a soft response, which would be something along the lines of sanctions, cyber attack, financial consequences, you know, something like cutting off financial markets or something like that. In the more dire situation, where Putin intervenes militarily, um, the United States would probably go for a more hard option, which would be military intervention. Now, typically countries are going to want to go for the soft option. I mean, they're a lot less expensive. You're not going to have to deal with loss of life and, and human suffering. I mean, I think that's something we all want to avoid. Now, what would authorize under international law the military, the hard option, the military intervention on behalf of the United States. And it's very clear under international law that aggression, military aggression, violates international law. Now, that is Article 2.4 of the United States, uh, sorry, of the United Nations Charter. 
The United Nations Charter prohibits aggressive war. This actually predates the United Nations Charter. So the Nazis were prosecuted at Nuremberg for aggressive war. That was uh, under what's called the London Charter, which laid out the crimes that the Nazis were prosecuted for. So this is a pretty long-standing prohibition. And that would trigger another article of the United Nations Charter, which is Article uh, 51, which allows for self-defense. And one of the things that I think is particularly salient here is that, and I I just want to read here, it authorizes what is called collective self-defense. So it's not self-defense just by the Ukraine. It's collective self-defense by other countries in the world. I think this is of particular importance here because what that does is it brings into the fold the United States and possibly NATO to retaliate against Russia. And one thing that I am sort of a proponent of and have championed in my scholarship is that by waging aggressive war, Putin would would effectively be inflicting two violations of international law. So let's say we have, and here we have, a diagram of country A and country B, okay? Now, one violation, let's say just geographically, let's go geographically. So country B violates the territorial sovereignty of country A. So that's one delict, we would say. That's one wrong under international law in this specific case. But there's another violation. What that does is it weakens the rule of international law, the rule of non-aggression. So we have two separate but related violations. One is the specific aggression against the Ukraine. The other is the weakening of the rule of non-aggression. And that touches on the interests of every state in the world, because every state in the world has a vested interest in the rule of non-aggression. Why is this so important? I think it's so important because the retaliation needs to deter against that. It needs to deter not only the specific violation of the Ukrainian sovereignty, but also the violation of the rule of non-aggression. And what does this mean? It goes directly to proportionality. So there's a rule of proportionality in international law. You break international law, the retaliation must be proportionate to that violation. I think that's wrong. I think if you break international law, you're not just breaking a specific law in a specific situation, you're breaking also the underlying rule of non-aggression there, right? And so I think the proportionality of the retaliation has to be somewhat larger to deter, because otherwise you wouldn't have deterrence. Let me break in here on a couple of questions. So first of all, one thing you didn't mention in the intro is that you've long been a member of uh, nuclear non-proliferation, and that is something that's really kind of hallmarked your life work, that you've been working within the law to avoid war and to avoid breaches of international law. Talk about that collective self-defense. If I understood that, that means that 
every country in the world would say, hey, if there's aggression that breaches an established border, I have an interest in self-defense because I don't want somebody breaching my border. Right. And I would imagine if this is not too many questions baked into one, China would look at Taiwan and go, we're not breaching any borders. That's always been our territory. Is Putin trying to say that about the Ukraine as well? I think he is. Yes, I think he is. Mm -hmm. Um, Except for we also have clearly demarcated lines on a map that collectively we agree on. And Putin may not agree on that, but the retaliation would come from the collective international community in the United States in particular. So one state, for example, and here, let me see if I can just write this out for you. International law is made up of two components, okay? One component is something is called state practice. And sorry, I'm just writing this out. No problem. It's uh, while you're writing that out, if I can interject another question about the proportionality in the response, police forces have a rule that says they can go to one more extreme level of restraint or violence than the perpetrator. Right. And it sounds like it's a very similar construct. Yeah, uh, that is very, that is very, very similar uh, because we want, what do we want? We want deterrence. Yes. You know, if you think about it as a cost benefit analysis, you know, Putin may say, yes, I'm going to incur a cost, right? By invading Ukraine. And I have to measure the benefit. And if I deem the benefit to outweigh the cost, I'm going to invade the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. What we're trying to do is we're trying to increase that cost, right? We're trying to say it's not equivalent. Your cost is going to be higher than your benefit, effectively. I understand. So in international law, we have two components. We have state practice, which is widespread and consistent. So the more countries in the world that agree and practice this way, the more it forms the law. And this is something called customary international law, which is different than the treaty law that I was discussing earlier, which was the UN Charter. And then we have something called opinio juris, which is really the psychological element of the law, which says we're obeying the state practice because we believe it is legal. I see. Would Putin and Biden have different views on the second classification there? Is that where they, Putin would say, hey, I, I, I can do this and you have no standing to retaliate? Is that? Yeah. And I actually, I actually think with respect to these two uh, components, going back to your original question about one state or Putin saying, well, Ukraine's really mine. That's one opinion of 200, mm-hmm. right? So that's not widespread state practice accompanied by opinio juris, which is what you were just talking about. Putin may yes. say, my practice is that I can I can take back some of the Ukraine, and I think that's legally permissible. Whereas you have a multitude of other states saying, no, that's mm-hmm. not the law. That's not where we presently stand. And so, you know, that would be illegal. The other thing that's really important here is that if the United States decides to intervene it is a spectacular opportunity for the United States to craft the law of armed intervention going forward, because what the United States would be doing 
is showing the world how a military intervention would be conducted. And that counts as state practice. So instead of just intervening, it would be incumbent upon the United States to say, look, this is how we're going to intervene. We're going to obey the laws of war. In this nascent area, every future intervention would be measured against the legality of the United States intervention, if that makes sense. Does that compute for you? It does. And would providing, let's say, lethal military aid to the Ukrainians, would that fall someplace between sanctions and actually putting our armed forces in harm's way? Sure. And that's, I mean, I think that's where we are now, right? Um, mm-hmm. We're saying we're going we're gonna to give you enhanced weapons capabilities, Ukraine, if Russia invades. And I think that's somewhere between the soft and the hard option at this point. Isn't that kind of an incentive for Putin to invade? Because wouldn't he want to invade before the weapons got there? Yeah, I mean, look, there's a chronological component here, right? You know, if you're talking about, for example, the soft option and something like sanctions, you know, you want there to be enough time for those sanctions to do the damage. Mm -hmm. Um, And then if you start threatening enhanced weapons capabilities, yeah, it could incentivize Putin to to take those steps. That said, I mean, it's not going to be that difficult for the United States to give the Ukrainian military those enhanced weapons capabilities. I mean, in my view, should Putin engage in an intervention or in, in an invasion, I think that the response would be pretty quick from the United States, and it would be military on behalf of the United States and any NATO members that um, would support that intervention. I see. So imagine you were called into the Oval Office um, <laughs> with a team. Well, I mean, that's they bring people like you in. And the President of the United States looks at you and he says, Professor Colangelo, what's your assessment of the situation and what do you think my two best options are? What would you tell the president of the United States? Has there been a military intervention in your hypothetical? Uh, no, it's as, as, we sta- as we stand today. That's as we stand today here on January 20th of 2022, uh, early in the day, because the way the news is going, anything could happen later today. <laughs> but right. you're, called, you're called in, you arrive in Washington, D.C. this evening. Situation's basically the same. The president has you come into the Oval Office. Secretary of Defense is there, Secretary of State's there, the President of the United States is there, Attorney General's there, and they turn to you and say, Professor Colangelo, what do you think our options are at this point, and what are your two best recommendations? I mean, I would really have one one best recommendation, and the best recommendation would be, look, uh, you invade Ukraine, uh, we're going to see how many NATO allies we can get, and even if we can't get any, the military response will be swift and lethal. I'm a hawk, probably one of the very few in academia. As I sort of alluded to, I'm, a, I'm unorthodox in a bunch of my thinking, but I think that we cannot allow aggression. I think it has to be dealt with swiftly and uh, effectively. And yeah, I mean, my advice would be, um, you know, this is, this is intolerable, basically. And you provide the president the legal basis to do that? Yes, Um, I would lay out the legal case for intervening, and I would start with the UN Charter. I mean, it's very clear that you have a right to self-defense, and it's very clear that it's collective self-defense. Well, one of the things I enjoy, one of the many things I enjoy about talking with you is that you're demonstrating again to our audience that there's more than two ways to think. 
you know, we've been kind of driven into this polar opposite here and polar opposite there and inflamed by this reporting industry as if those are the only two choices and people only come in one or two flavors. You know, I was communicating with a friend today. It's like, you know, one side wants to say all the Republicans are ivermectin drinking MAGA hat wearers and the opposite wants to say all the Democrats are you know, washing their groceries and hoarding toilet paper because the president told them to. You know, neither of those are true, but that's kind of what we're devolving into. And that's what we're trying to arrest on the common bridge with this fiercely nonpartisan discussion. And having a person like you that's devoted your entire professional career. And while you describe yourself as a hawk, you also want to stop nuclear proliferation. Sure. So yeah. clearly you're not, uh, you don't have an itchy trigger finger either. No, I mean, and my, my thoughts, I wrote a, a piece in the Harvard National Security Journal on why nuclear weapons would be illegal. And basically my argument there was that if you can use conventional weapons to achieve the same military objective as using nuclear weapons, the use of nuclear weapons would be illegal because they're quantitatively different than the use of conventional weapons. And so you would violate a whole slew of the law of war. Mm -hmm. I like to think that my thinking is a, a bit more nuanced than straight up hawk or a straight up liberal. And oh, it, it, it most definitely is. And I was paying you a compliment. And also, <laughs> I, I'm just cheered that we have more people like yourself willing to come out and say, hey, look, I don't think side A, I don't think side B. And that's, I think, really where most of the country is. But we're being fed this narrative, pick a tribe and, and get with it. On nuclear weapons, one of my favorite pieces of writing is by a fellow named Paul Fussell, who wrote a piece called In Praise of the Atomic Bomb. And he wrote it in like 1981, I want to say. And we'll put mm -hmm. that up on our website. And if we can get your piece from Harvard permission, we'll put that up as well. Sure, sure. But it was an, an amazing piece of writing because he was a soldier uh, who had seen action in Africa and in Europe, had been injured and was being prepared to invade Japan. And at the time, they expected 100% casualties. And then when they heard that the atomic bomb had been dropped, he said, oh, my goodness, we're going to get to live. We're going to get to become old men. It, it is a great piece of writing by somebody that had a firsthand view Right. This. And, yeah. and I, I, if you haven't seen it, I will uh, get it over to you because I think you'd like it. I'll check it out for sure. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen it. He became a, a quite a liberal writer throughout his life. So he's not a, you know, political animal or a, you know, intense right winger. He was just, you know, a guy called to do his duty and he was doing it and was ready to die for it and got bailed out. So great. Um, did we have these kind of laws back there in 1945? Yes, we had the law of war, but we didn't have anything really regarding the uniqueness of nuclear weapons. The law of war was very fuzzy, dealing with the Geneva Conventions, which then were made more specific in the 70s um, with the additional protocols and Hague Conventions and things of that sort. A lot of the law of war dealing with proportionality 
and attack and things like that. I believe came later. I, have to, I would have to research it a little bit more. But regarding that strike, it was pretty unprecedented. Indeed. Well, look, in this present day that I, I hope and I pray that our president can prevail on President Putin to back down on the Ukraine. I hope that we can apply the right international pressures to keep China away from Taiwan. You know, mankind, humankind is better served in the absence of war and better to let's have health care and let's have open markets and, and clean up our environment and such. Uh, Professor Colangelo, before we wrap up today, what didn't we talk about that perhaps we should spend a few minutes on? Um, I think we talked about it and I mentioned it. And, you know, I would just really want to emphasize that should the United States intervene, what is really important from my perspective as an international lawyer is when you take a look at these two components of state practice and opinio juris, what they do is they really provide a massive opportunity for the United States to craft the law of military intervention. We don't have a lot of precedent here in terms of a retaliation intervening to stop an aggressive war under present international law. So what we do have is we do have the law of war or what's called humanitarian law which is all about saving life and preventing suffering. So this isn't just a sort of call, abstract call to humanitarianism. This is really a precedent-setting opportunity. And should the United States, when you talk about the opinio juris, mm -hmm. the state practice would be the intervention, right? Right. When you talk about the, the opinio juris, that's the psychological component. That's where the, That's where the United States would be saying... We're intervening, and this is the manner in which we're intervening. How, here's how we conduct our intervention. And if we conduct our intervention in line with the law of war, we're setting the precedent for how countries going forward must intervene. If we just say we're intervening, mm -hmm. there's no legal precedent. Right. Right? There's no opinio juris. What we need is the opinio juris. As I said before, it's a spectacular opportunity to lay the groundwork for the law of war, which prevents loss of life and human suffering. And so while I am a hawk in some respects, I'm also very committed to international human rights and humanitarian law at the same time. I don't see those in conflict that President Reagan said, the world's never suffered from a strong America. And Sometimes, you know, stronger states will try to take over weaker states. The uh, history of humankind is filled with that. Frankly, I like lawyers arguing better than I like soldiers firing weapons. It's, it's a much better way to do things. I'm cheered by the fact that you're working on this. And, you know, who knows? Maybe we'll send a copy of this over to the White House and encourage President Biden to pick up the phone and give you a shout. That would be great. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking today with Professor Anthony Colangelo of Southern Methodist University on a great conversation that, frankly, not too many people know about, the legal structures around interventions among nations and ways that we can stop illegal aggression across borders, something that's important to everybody. Uh, please subscribe to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge on Substack. Go to substack.com and enter Common Bridge in the search bar. 
register $5 a month for this kind of exciting content, our newsletter and columns, also at your favorite podcast outlet and on YouTube TV. This is your host, Rich Helpy, with our guest, Professor Anthony Colangelo, signing off on The Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Please subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com, where you can find more interviews, columns, podcasts, video, and other nonpartisan discussions to the problems of today. On Substack, you can access the full archive and bonus columns, podcasts, and interviews for only $5 a month. Please go to Substack.com and search for The Common Bridge and subscribe. All rights reserved by Richard Helpy.